Morning, morning. Nice to see some of your faces I haven't seen for a while, and I always miss you. That's what I always say. Um, today, we're not going to be doing the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be the Sermon of the Firsts. Um, Bevan, I'm doing the second part of a two-part series of the prophecy of co- the coming of Jesus Christ as we prepare for Christmas. But seeing that it's holidays, they're upon us, let's quickly do a literature quiz. Anybody here done a lit quiz when you were younger? Um, I'm going to read the first word or words of a book, and I'm going to hope that you will get it before I do the whole sentence. So here's the first one. Here is Edward Bear. When, thank you, Winnie the Pooh. Apart from life, a strong constitution and abiding connection to the Tembu royal household. The only thing my father bestowed upon me at birth was a name, Roli Chlachla. Long walk to freedom. Okay. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of good fortune... You already knew that. When Mr. Bilbo, (laughs) call me Ishmael, Moby Dick. These two very old people are the father and mother of Mr. Bucket, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Dorothy. (laughs) Thank you. Um, And my matrix set workbook, very special. It was a bright, cold day in April, and the clocks were striking 13. No one else was in matric when I was. Okay, 1984, George Orwell. Now for this one. The question is different. What are the first four words of the Old Testament? That's three. Thank you. (laughs) In the beginning, God. In chapter 1 of the entire Bible, we focus our attention on meeting God, who always was there before anything else. We read the word God 35 times in that short chapter, and it's repeated. God created, God said, God set, God made, God called, God blessed. And it's a picture of a magnificent creator giving that which is formless, a dimension and order, speaking light and providing an earth full of life for his precious image bearers, living, created, male and female, the first. And at the end of the chapter, we read that God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. In chapter 2, we zoom into a closer look at that male and female, and we see their intimate and unique relationship with God, who placed them in the glorious garden that he planted for them, and he was with them, and he blessed them with abundance. And we also see their companionship and their roles. Adam and Eve stood together, but when he saw her for the first time, he shouted, Wow, this is it at last! As God introduces her to him, and they became one flesh in marriage. But God placed a boundary in this paradise, and he tells Adam, don't eat the fruit of this one tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or you will die. And all seemed well and very good until chapter 3, the first sin. Then suddenly we meet Satan, that ancient evil disguised as a serpent who managed to convince Eve that God's boundary was a joke and that she had the right to make her own moral judgments. 
So she picked the fruit from the forbidden tree and ate and gave some to her husband. And then all hell broke loose with blaming and shaming. And then there was this inbursting of infectious evil into everything that was very good. And this chapter explains why there's disease and death and war and disasters. It shows why we sin and why there's corruption and hatred. And it explains the reason why the world is the way it is today. The spiritual relationship between God and mankind was severed at the fall. Adam and Eve were banished from the Garden of Eden. Divine judgment was placed on all of creation, and the punishment of death began to be carried out on that day when Adam and Eve first sinned. And the first part of Romans 6.23 confirms this. Paul says, for the wages of sin is death. And now that we're feeling rather hopeless, suddenly we see a prophecy conceived. And in the middle of Genesis 3, when you don't expect it, there comes this prophecy, a first promise of hope from the mouth of God. And he's busy pronouncing a curse on the serpent, and he says, Genesis 3.15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And according to this verse, there will be hatred between Eve and the serpent who had deceived her. And there will also be hostility between Satan's seed and her seed. The children of the devil, those who do not love God, those who love Satan, and the descendants of humanity will be at war with each other. God cursed the serpent to slither on the ground. It would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. It's a strike from the behind. However, the seed of the woman, and notice the word used here, he would crush the head of the serpent. The seed of the woman is a man. And commentators believe that the seed of this woman referred to here is Jesus. Therefore, in Genesis 3, 15, the first glimmer of the gospel of salvation of hope, deliverance from sin and Satan, and embedded in this curse is the prophecy of freedom and joy. It's the beginning of a long line of prophecies concerning the coming Messiah. The promised one would be the imperishable seed born of God. Yes, his humanity would be bruised on the cross for the sins of mankind, but Satan would receive a death blow to his head. And this is one of the reasons why Jesus became man, because God said that the offspring of the woman would crush Satan. So we're looking at Romans 6 now. Let's finish the sentence. For the wages of sin is death, but... The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And in 1 John 2, we read, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. He allowed himself to be bruised 
as an atonement for the sins of the whole world. And now we're going to see that this prophecy is birthed. And we're going to fly right over the Old Testament, thousands of years. And we come to the very first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. And we're introduced to what at first looks like a cure for insomnia. And if you can't sleep at night, read Matthew chapter 1. What are the first, first words of Matthew chapter 1? Sorry. <laughs> what are the next words of Matthew chapter 1? The first words are, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Matthew takes us down a long list of names in Jesus' family tree. And today I want us to see that Jesus is just, not just a member of an ongoing family tree. He is the goal of the family tree. The prophecy made in Genesis thousands of years earlier was birthed through the coming of Christ to earth. As Vaughan said, God put Jesus into a family. And what a family. Wow. So we're going to read this together. Brave up. We are not going to stop. Once we start, people, we are going to take off 14 sets of three names. How much is that? 14 times three? Four, huh? How many? Thank you. I'm going to read the black, and you're going to read the red, and we are going to keep going. We're not stopping, okay? So please help me through this, okay? Right. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Here's his family. Abraham was the father of? Isaac was the father of, Jacob the father of, and his brothers, Judah the father of, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of, Hezron the father of, Ram the father of, Abinadad the father of, Nashon the father of, Salmon the father of, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of, and Jesse the father of. Breathe. David was the father of, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon the father of, Rehoboam the father of, the fa Ab Abijah the father of, Asa the father of, Jehoshaphat the father of, Jehoram the father of, Uzziah the father of, Jotham the father of, Ahaz the father of, Hezekiah the father of, Manasseh the father of, Amon the father of, and Josiah the father of, and his brothers at the time of the exile of Babylon. We're nearly there. By the way, this is not a complete list. Matthew wasn't trying to get it historically correct. He just wanted to show something. After the exile to Babylon, Jehoiachin was the father of, Shatiel the father of, Zerubbabel the father of, Abihud, the father of, Eliakim, the father of, Azor, the father of, Zadok, the father of, Akim, the father of, Elihud, the father of, Elihazar, the father of, Nathan, the father of, and Jacob, the father of, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. There's his family tree, and you're all awake. So Jewish people loved genealogies in those days. It was similar to a CV or a resume. 
So your family pedigree and clan would basically describe who you were as a person. So if you went for a job interview, they would ask you, um, who's your father? Who's your grandfather? Who's your great-grandfather? Where do you originate? Who are your roots and seeds? If you applied for a job today, the question is, tell me about yourself. (laughs) Completely different. And at first glance, through the Messiah's family tree, we see a couple of great names there. Abraham is one, the father of many nations. God said in Genesis 12 that Israel would become a great nation through his offspring, the seed, and that all people of the earth would be blessed through him, and so was Isaac and Jacob, the patriarchs of Israel. This is looking good. And then the second impressive name, of course, we have to mention is King David, a man after God's own heart. He was Israel's greatest king, and he led Israel into a golden era of righteousness and blessing. And God promised that his family would always have someone sitting on the royal throne. Jesus would have looked pretty impressive with his respectable roots. But then on closer inspection, it seems that the author of Matthew's gospel is bringing out the family skeletons, not hiding him like others would have done in order to keep face. Timothy Keller points out this genealogy is unlike other ancient genealogies. Why? Because there are names of women there. Although it's not unusual for us today, women were very, very rarely mentioned in a family tree. Family trees were lists of men, about men. And here, casting a shadow on Jesus is in verse 3, Tamar, a pagan worshipping Canaanite, and she was married to Judah's son. He was really wicked, and everyone knew that the Messiah would come through the house of Judah. A whole lot of messy drama unfolds in her life when Ur dies. I'm cutting a long story short. You can read it in Genesis 38. She dresses up as a prostitute, puts a veil over her face, and tricks her father-in-law into sleeping with her, and she falls pregnant with the twins, Perez and Sarah. And then in verse 5, to our shock and horror, we see Rahab listed as an ancestor of Jesus. She was also a Canaanite, and she was a professional prostitute. And she, it seems that she was running a brothel. To be fair, in Joshua 2, she did a good thing by assisting the Israelites in overcoming um, Jerusalem, I mean, the city of Jericho, and she landed up marrying Salmon. And then also in verse 5, we see Ruth who lived in the time of Judges, and she was an admirable uh, daughter-in-law to Naomi, but she was a foreigner, a Moabitess, and she came from a nation that formed as a result of an incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. And in Deuteronomy 23, the Israelites were told to stay away from the Moabites, but Ruth is mentioned as family of the Messiah And in verse 6, we have a mention of Bathsheba. But interestingly, her name is not used here. She's listed on the family tree as Uriah's wife. And he was a Hittite, an enemy of God. And Timothy Keller believes that the gospel writer calls her Uriah's wife, not to shame her, but to shame King David. She was somebody's wife, 
but he had a child with her. His lust and his seduction and adultery and then the deception and then the murder of her husband, all of which would have been completely offensive to include in a family tree. Why was she there? And then going down to verse 16, we see Mary, a Jewish girl who found herself pregnant with a child that was not Joseph's, her fiance. This was an outrage. But here she's mentioned on the family tree, and here's a surprise. The author doesn't logically continue with, and Joseph was the father of Jesus. He uses the, the divine passive, and he said, and Mary was the mother of Jesus. She was the only woman to have the seed. And Jesus was the only human that was not produced by the seed of man. Now, the Jews observing this genealogy would have scoffed. They would never have believed that this was the Messiah's lineage. Can you understand why it's so hard to accept this? There were gender outsiders, racial outsiders, moral outsiders on the family tree. Israel thought salvation was just for them. We don't have time to go through all the names, praise the Lord. But the one that stood out for me, that, that King Manasseh, he was, oh, and you read that, go and read about his life. He landed up with a hook through his nose and tied up in chains. That was pretty scary. And then God still forgave him. So what was the author thinking when he hung up this dirty washing line of scandal and pagans and women in the genealogy of Jesus? And when I thought about it and did some reading, I really believe that God wants to reveal himself to us through it. So many names of people, but God, but God. Firstly, God is gracious. Can you agree that in spite of all these people's past and behaviors and circumstances, God graciously fulfilled his purposes and promises through them? It was out of a dysfunctional, sinful family history that the promised Messiah came to deal with sin that began in the Garden of Eden. He's able to take the worst possible situations in all of history and turn it around. There's nobody beyond the grace of God. There's nobody like God. Satan battered that family tree. He threw everything he had to make the Messiah die. He tried to destroy the seed of the woman, but God's word prevails over evil attacks. Secondly, God loves everyone. Paul Beasley Murray said that God is in the business of saving everyone. Jesus is good news for people of every race, color, nation, prostitute, king, moral, immoral, innocent, perpetrator, equally sinful, equally lost, but equally accepted and loved by God. He humbled himself to become a fetus in a human womb, in the womb of a teenager, an ordinary teenager, and was born in a humble stable. Thirdly, God is holy. In ancient times, it was thought that contact with unholiness 
is contagious. And because a person would then become unclean, they would have to go through rituals of cleansing. But Jesus' holiness and goodness cannot be contaminated by sin, even though his family tree looks shady. That's for you, Annie. And he's the queen of puns. Rather, we are infected by his holiness and when we come into contact with him. And Jesus came to crush the head of Satan and bring victory over sin and death so that people can once again come into an intimate relationship with God. We can become his children, adopted into his family, the heavenly family. So I've never done this before, but this sermon was written and inspired by Jesus, of course. But when I saw a picture like this, firstly, you usually find scripture, then look for pictures. But I found this picture, and it's been burning in my heart for years. I saw it a couple of years ago. And it's a beautiful summary of what the focus of today is. Imagine if Eve and Mary met. Eve has a serpent wrapped around her leg, and she has fallen to sin. And she looks sad and ashamed. Her body's covered, and she knows the door of death that she and Adam have unlocked has impacted all of humanity. Yet she holds on to the words God spoke to the serpent in Genesis 3.15, how one of her future offspring was going to crush its head. And then we look at Mary reaching out to comfort her, saying, it's happening. God is faithful to his promises, and his word is true. Mary is pregnant with a son whose name is Jesus, of the throne of David, and who is the son of God, the title known as the Messiah. And in this picture, we see Mary standing on the snake, not because she crushes its head, but because her son, Jesus Christ, is the one to fulfill the prophecy that Satan and evil will be defeated on the cross of Calvary. When this child is born, the prophecy is birthed, and that's the first Christmas. And when I think of this next picture, I'm like thinking of my life, and when I became his child, he planted his seed into filth into mess. God plants seed in dirt. And from the dirt, he brings hope and healing and restoration and beauty. In the trash heap of my family tree, and I am one hanging on there, casting shadow on the history of our trees, God has done something amazing. Keiku leget no. He's not ashamed to call us friends. So I'm thinking about Christmas this year in the chaos of buying and all the glitz and the glamour. We've lost this, this thing from Genesis through to, to the birth of Christ. We're on the other end of the crucifixion. Satan's head has been crushed and we're in, waiting in expectancy for him to return again. But in the prayer meeting before we started today, Vaughan challenged us. And he said, you know, there's so much going on at the moment. 
in our city. There's injustice and crime and violence. There's bad circumstances. The poor and the vulnerable are suffering and there's illness. Today's World AIDS Day. There's addiction and abuse and bondage and neglect. There's people making poor choices. And this is almost like the trash heap of our society. And how can we not just pray into it, but what can we really, really do? How can we really, really bring the prophecy and its birth to the hearers of Cape Town and our nation? So I was thinking of inviting Jonathan. Where is he? There you are. Would you, would you come and talk to us a little bit about what um, the women and the activism days and before we finish off? Hi, everyone. Yeah. Um, I am here, as you probably know from... Part of the reason is I want to try and dispel some of the macho image that's been created by that little signature. Um, today is actually much more appropriate than I realized in terms of this talk. And for some of you, this might be very uncomfortable, what I'm about to say, but we need to know about this. A couple of months ago, this Enough is Enough campaign started um, with the women. And I thought, well, you know, this is really a bit of an overkill because I don't know... I don't certainly abuse women or rape women, and I don't know any of my friends that do. But so this really is just, isn't this just a bit much? I'm blessed with three kids, two of whom are daughters. My oldest is in her mid 20s, and the, um, the young daughter of about 15. Unfortunately, my relationship with them, I'm, I'm very pleased to say, is very open. Um, it wasn't always like that. But over the last couple of years, um, we, uh, they, they open, they've opened themselves up to me about everything, sometimes stuff I really <laughs> didn't want to know, but um, in, a, in a good way, and it's been very healthy. And, w and my eldest daughter particularly was very um, uh, involved, radical, if you like, about the Enough is Enough um, campaign. Um, and then she was part of the march, and she was even part of hashtag men or trash, which I really thought was pushing the envelope. And she had lots of arguments with my son, who's in the middle. And I couldn't understand um, why, why, you know, why she was so activistic about this whole thing. Um, I'm just go back a little bit when I was probably at my first year at varsity, if I remember correctly. My father invited me one day to when I was home over the weekend to go play golf with him, which was very strange because he'd never invited me to play golf with him before. I'd never had a golf lesson. Um, so the whole thing was very peculiar. But anyway, I went because I was only too happy to go you know, try and play golf with him. And on the way to the golf course, he said to me, so, uh, Jonathan, I suppose you know everything about the birds and the bees? Um, and I said, yes, Dad, I'm first year varsity. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, oh, well, that's all right then. And I suddenly realized what had happened. My mother had obviously told him, listen, you've got to have the conversation with Jonathan. And that was the conversation. <laughs> so he could breathe a sigh of relief because he didn't have to go into any detail. And I must confess, my, with my son, I didn't do that as well, but for different reasons. I just assumed that pornography is so rampant that by now I didn't, there's nothing I could explain to him. But I couldn't have been more wrong. Um, 
starting off with my eldest daughter, when I started talking to her about this, uh, she said, Dad, all her friends, not some, all of her friends have either been sexually abused or raped. And this was a shock. You know, I expect rapists as to be the ones who hide behind the bushes at night and when you're walking along and they jump out at you. These were her friends and friends of friends, people she knew that took advantage of them when they, they had too much to drink or whatever. My youngest daughter at school uh, was involved with a, or got in some kid in her school wrote a, a letter, which of all the things that he'd like to do to her, which was just mind-bogglingly horrific. It caused a big scene, uh, obviously, and we issue and we sorted it out. At, but she also has confessed to me some time ago that she was exposed to pornography at the age of 15. I, uh, I belong to um, another group of guys, and one of the morning we were talking about it. One of the guys in this group um, is runs a ministry in the townships amongst kids. So they find places in townships like open fields where they can create activities for the children on weekends just so to keep them out of trouble. And this ministry has been extremely successful. They expanded into Africa, etc. So I said to him one day, I said, so what happens to your, have you had this amongst the women in your teens? He said, every, every day, every day. The one, he said, the most recent example, one of his female leaders was accosted by 50 or 10, 15 men, the number really doesn't matter, uh, in the township who were going to gang rape her. And she negotiated with them that she'll sleep with one of them willingly to avoid being raped by all of them. But that's, that's how bad it is, and that's what's happening now. Um, I uh, haven't spoken to my daughters, etc., and I've been more sensitized to what's happening. I had dinner once one evening with uh, a guy that's involved in one of my businesses. Gentleman in his retired gentleman in his late 70s with his wife, we went out to dinner in, in Ronnebosch. Um, and maybe because I was so sensitized to him, I, I noticed the comments he was making in front of his wife to the waitress, you know, about are you on the menu and this sort of stuff, which was meant in jest. And I'm confess I've done that before, trying to be funny um, at a restaurant. But while later, a couple of days later, I was in the spa in Pymans with my youngest daughter, 15 years old, and we were walking through what I call the... the um, Temptation Valley, which <laughs> is those aisles, and you know, <laughs> with all the sweets, Valley of Temptation. And she was trying to persuade me to buy her chocolates, and I was not going to buy her chocolates. So we we're having half of a wrestling match and half of sort of pushing and shoving each other. And this elderly gentleman behind me said, oh, get a room. And it was just so inappropriate on so many different levels. I was shocked. My daughter, the youngest daughter, was hor hor horrified. But he meant it in jest. He wasn't being serious. He was trying to be funny. He was standing there with a smile on his face. He won't do it again. But I mean, the point is, he was trying to be funny. And, and I noticed that I've been guilty of that a lot of the times. Maybe and hopefully not as inappropriately. But nevertheless, making silly comments, sexist comments about women. So I needed to look at myself. Um, then I was reading something on Facebook, that well-known medical journal. And I saw, and I saw this 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 article from America, the, about a survey that had been done for young kids, and I'm talking my youngest daughter's uh, age, where romance is out of relationships altogether. There's no such thing as holding hands, kissing, hugging, that sort of stuff. It's straight into sex. Uh, the extent of 
photographs of your private parts being sent and, and, and some reciprocity being expected. And if you want a kiss, you've got to do some other favors first. I mean, that is just horrendous at that age. That's where it is. There's no difference. The kids don't know the difference between making love and sex. It's, gone, it's got to that horrendous stage, something that God created as a, as a wonderful experience between a couple has been Satan has successfully created that rubbish around it. Just yesterday, two days ago, I've got on my phone a, a, a couple of podcasts, one of which is BBC News. Now, there's nothing sexy or particularly um, one would expect to find anything like this on BBC News. But part of the the, the items they have on my uh, video clips, short video clips of things happening around the world, like the riots in Japan, the riots in Argentina, and all these sort of things. There was a video clip of a young girl who looked like she was in her mid-twenties. And this is on BBC, for heaven's sake. Um, and she was saying all the men that she's been sleeping with either try and strangle her, pull her hair, or smack her. You know where that comes from. To the extent that she doesn't want to have sex anymore with any guys. She's off sex altogether. That the survey that they did, 30% of women in England are having the same experience. I remember to put some, you know, one thinks that this is just what's happening now. I, I never forget reading the passage in, in, in Genesis where Abram is negotiating with God over Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham tries to persuade God not to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. So he says, listen, if I find 40 people in Sodom and Gomorrah, will you save the city? So God says, okay. And Abraham goes off and he can't find 40 people. He comes back, maybe if I find 20. If I find 20 people, will you save Sodom and Gomorrah? He says, sure. Of course, we know the story. There was only one and that was Lot. But this is the part that really bothered me because God sent his angels in to warn Lot that he must get out of the city because he's going to destroy it. What happens to the angels is that the locals try to corner them to sodomize them. Now, if that's not shocking enough, to try and distract the locals from uh, the angels, Lot offers his daughters. Leave them, take my daughters. How did we get there? How did they get into that state of this being normal? And I'm starting to realize... This is how it happens. If we don't know about this, I know this might be an uncomfortable topic for some of us to talk about, but the reason I'm here is because I've come to realize that we need to know as parents, we need to know as mothers and fathers, that conversation that I never had, well, I sort of had with my dad, is now extremely important, and not to wait until 18, but to start at 14, 15, and not just with my sons, with my daughters, to tell them this is not what it's like. This is not a, what it's supposed to be like. Um, so, you know, so, so what are we going to do about this? Well, the simple answer would be to stop pornography, but we know that's not going to happen. So we need to tell our children, advise our children about what they're supposed to do, what relations are supposed to be like, what making love is supposed to be like as opposed to sex, and how that's supposed to fit into a relationship. Um, as as guys ourselves is to to watch ourselves when we think we're funny by making a sexist joke or a comment. Just stop and think about it. Is it really necessary? Can you be funny another way without being sexist? It's something we need to think about. 
the slippery slope, it's like I was thinking, just look, looking at this curtain earlier. I was on this side of the curtain, blissfully unaware for that enough about the enough and enough program. I didn't know what was happening behind the curtain. I had no idea that it wasn't when I thought I don't know anyone was being affected by it. My own daughters were being affected by it. They were behind the curtain, facing all that stuff in their daily lives. None of us would want our daughters to be abused sexually or any other way. And if I caught the guy that did that, he, I'd prostrate the bugger. But it's happening. It's happening, and it's happening with their own communities, their own friends, their own, and it's become the norm in society. If we don't, and so our kids growing up, this is the scary part I realized just sitting here listening today about you know, uh, Bernadette's, what Satan, how Satan tried to destroy that lineage. If we don't tell our kids what's happening now becomes their norm. Just think about that. That becomes, the if, if they don't know what we know, fortunately we didn't have that growing up. But if, they, if, they, if we don't tell them that that's not what's happening now is not normal, it's not what it's supposed to be like, their norm is the next level, a couple of steps up from Sodom and Gomorrah. At, at maybe two or three, maybe there's one more, a few more to go. But the point is, the, the baseline has been destroyed. The baseline of the norm of what it's supposed to be like. So I know this is difficult to hear, but I think it is something that we all need to know, particularly this few days of violence. Where does that come from? The pornography objectifies the woman. She is someone there to pleasure the man, full stop. That's what it's got to. So if she doesn't cooperate or whatever, then you beat up because she's just, she, she's just a, an object. That is the danger. Um, so I think we need to be aware. We need to pull that curtain apart, uh, away, just to have a look, to see what's going on out there, um, going on out there, so we are aware for our own children and to let them know that this is not normal. Watch ourselves when we have conversations about sexist comments. As I say, ideally switch off pornography, but that's not going to um, happen. And we need a conversation now. It's not for 18-year-olds. It's for our young kids because they're being exposed to that much earlier than we like to acknowledge. So not very nice message, I'm afraid, but it's something that I think everyone should be aware of. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Jonathan, as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, when in the beginning God spoke and he spoke and it and it what came into being. And we are his image bearers and I'm wondering how we can speak life and truth and um, we can actually change situation because God's called us to represent him. And uh, I think, Hillary, you were saying, arise and shine, your light has come, it has come. And we are not operating from the back foot, we are moving forward because we have the victory already. Um, it'll be really good if we could just break into little groups and let's just pray about um, something that's touched your heart today, uh, maybe the things that are going on in our city, um, whether it's about um, the violence, the gender issues, um, poverty, addiction. I mean, can we go through the list? Just what's burning? And let's Let's pray, but when we leave here, let's not just pray. Let's join something, do something. How are we going to take this Christmas message of this imperishable seed, the promises of God, the truth of where we're heading? How are we going to take that into 
our Jerusalem and make a difference. So let's just quickly pray together. And then, um, yeah, do you want to speak? Sorry. If we can do that, uh, maybe just not big groups. Yeah. So we don't take too long and everyone can get a chance if they would like a chance. Um, so maybe groups of three, I think, would be good. Can we do that just around where you are? Just don't worry about moving the chairs around. Move them around. Shuffle, shuffle. It's no big deal. Yeah. If you are new here, you're feeling a bit uncomfortable, join a group. Um, no need to, no pressure, but just, let's just uh, take some time to pray together. And whatever's on your heart right now, what is God putting on your heart right now that you want to speak to Him about? Whether it's for a victim uh, or it's for a perpetrator or it's for the culture in our city or it's for us as the church. Whatever God is putting on your heart, do that. You see the pastors here, I didn't learn from my, my sheet. Small groups, lovely. <laughs> 